You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Robert Schneider, and welcome to 50 Key Stage Musicals, the podcast, a companion piece to the Routledge Press publication, 50 Key Stage Musicals, which is available for purchase by going to routledge.com or clicking the link below in today's show description. Today's episode focuses on Chapter 22, the 1968 production of Promises, Promises, and with us today is the author of that chapter, David Spencer. David is an award-winning musical dramatist, author, critic, and musical theater teacher. As lyricist, a librettist, two musicals with composer Alan Menken, The Apprenticeship of Duty Kravitz, and Weird Romance, two of my favorites, and the acclaimed colloquial English adaptation of La Boheme for the public theater. As author, the musical theater writer's survival guide, fantastic publication. There'll be a link to that in today's show descriptions for you to purchase it and read it. David was a 20-year veteran of the teaching faculty of the BMI Lemon Angle Musical Theater Workshop and has also taught at HB Studio Workshop Studio Theater plus venues in and around London. David, welcome to the program. We are so happy to have you today. Thank you. Appreciate that. Why is Promises, Promises a key musical? I think it's a key musical because of a number of factors that kind of coalesced. Um, You know, anything that is defined as the benchmark is usually not the first thing that did the technical things or the artistic things that make it a benchmark, but it's the first time where all of those elements combined and there was an alchemy where they stood out and made a a huge impression that would then be emulated. And that happened with Promises, I think, because um, it was the first time ever on Broadway during that era. I mean, Broadway always used pop music to one way or another, but it was the first time where what we associated with pop music was treated without commentary, usually in a musical like The Apple Tree and Passionella or Bye Bye Birdie, there were references to the kind of composition and um, there were various tropes used, but they didn't take that world or that vocabulary, I should say, seriously. Uh, I don't mean solemnly, but I mean seriously. 
And this was the first score where they just went for it, you know, and it was uh, a sound that had not been heard on Broadway, but it was a sound that everybody knew because Backrack had and, and Hal David had renovated what popular music was sounding like at the time. Um, there was nothing there, there still in a way is nothing like what Backrack sounds like. And, if, and um, oh, I'm sorry, please and, continue. No, it's okay. And Jonathan Tunick getting the gig um, happened through um, his having done a show for Malpey and Shire that never came into town but played the Westbury Music Fair. And Sondheim was kind of a mentor to them and he went to the show. And he was amazed at how big the orchestra sounded because you know, music fair orchestras are typically small and stripped down. And then he looked into the pit and indeed it was a small orchestra and he was flabbergasted at how much sound Tunic was getting out of it. And that's kind of like his, in a way it's been his signature because of um, uh, my, my orchestrator friend, Joe Giorno introduced me to the term of transparency. And meaning that the, or the instruments function kind of as themselves nakedly and doubling is not necessarily a de rigueur part of the, uh, uh, the chemistry of what you hear. You'll listen to a lot of more classic scores and you'll hear things like clarinets and violins doubling each other. Um, you'll hear all kinds of one instrument reinforcing another to send an, a, a message to the back of the theater. And um, what Jonathan Tunick's orchestrations did for Promises was it was one of the first examples of really letting instruments just function completely as themselves, kind of exposed and, as I say, transparent. Um, he wasn't the first person to do that. I would say that Eddie Sauter did it. Um, twice in the apple tree and in 1776 but they were more traditional scores so uh and and and, and robert ginsler i think was he the one who did how to succeed mm -hmm. um really interesting combinations of things i don't mean to say that jonathan tunic was like the sole you know innovator but that technique combined with the baccarat sound was kind of startling to hear in the theater and for a listener who has no idea who Burt Bacharach is, how would you describe the Bacharach sound? The Bacharach sound is possibly, arguably, the most musically sophisticated sound of 60s, especially early, mid to late 60s, popular music, not to be confused with rock, which hadn't sort of taken over completely. Um, because he was unafraid to shift keys. He was unafraid to shift time signatures. Um, I remember reading, um, I can't remember where it was, but Stephen Sondheim saying that one of the things he learned from Leonard Bernstein was that you didn't have to hold to a four-bar phrase just because you're used to hearing four-bar phrases mm. and that you don't necessarily need even to hold to a four-bar, you know, a bar with four beats if you don't necessarily need that for the rhetoric of the lyric to combine with the rhetoric of the music. Uh, 
And Bacharach uh, traffics in it all the time. If he doesn't need the extra, the extra beat, he doesn't do it. You know, and he does all kinds of experimental things with what was then experimental things with rhythm and accompaniment figures and um, melody figures. And Hal David, his lyricist, um, was expert at creating lyrics that rode those very particular and idiosyncratic melodies. Um, and it was just altogether a very, very distinctive sound. Um, and it had to do not only with the composition, but the arrangements and orchestrations, which he did. And um, the use of brass, the use of um, guitar, bass guitar, um, the use of backup vocals um, and articulated syllables of backup vocals. There was really nothing quite like it before. And again, you could say there were back, you know, lots of songs with backup vocals. There were lots of songs that had time signature things, <coughs> but there was, there was nobody who quite made all of that, synthesized all of that. So that became a defining style. And that sound was bracing in the theater. I saw the original production. I didn't see the original cast, but there's a bootleg, sound system bootleg out there of the opening night which got to me and I've heard it. And uh, for a whole number of reasons, it's, it's, it's fascinating. But in terms of the context of what we're talking about, just, it's a great recording because it has the power to kind of put you in the audience unless to, in the sense of sharing their sensibility because the sensibility of the show is, you know, is gone now. The, um, is the way it treats women and stuff like that. But at the time it was, that was not controversial. And listening to the way the orchestra sounded, especially when the miking was new, and listening to the actors uh, who were the, the you know the first ones to put that stuff over the over the footlights, and the audience is going nuts. The audience is going nuts at everything, and um, uh, it, it, it it's it, it's kind of astonishing because they know they're in something you know that that there's something electric going on and you can feel it. Do you know where the idea came from to have Burt Bacharach and Hal David transition from the pop music world to the world of musical theater? That was Neil Simon's idea. Um, David Merrick took him to lunch and said, uh, I want to do a musical with you. What would you like to adapt? And he uh you know, I wasn't a fly on the wall, but, you know, what I've read about this conversation is he said, I'm really a big fan of the film The Apartment. And he said, who would you think of for the score? And I guess because Hal, uh, Hal David and, and Bert Bacharach were in the zeitgeist, he said, why don't we go for these guys? It was not their first musical per se. There was a TV musical called On the Flip Side that they had done. Um, I think it was for Stage 67, which was the mm -hmm. same series as, as Evening Primrose. Um, I've seen clips from it and I've heard the soundtrack. It's, um, the songs are very attractive. Hal David was not a great dramatist, but, um, you know, there are some shows where you could say one or another of the authors wasn't a great this or wasn't a great sure. that, but it's also that moment in the sun because it's the right people in the right room with the right material. And, um, 
there was something about having Neil Simon do the book for that particular story. Because the way Neil Simon writes, when I think about all of the books that he's written for musicals, his particular style doesn't really lead to, at least as I... As I've seen them and as I've read the scripts, it doesn't really lead to that, you know, paragraph of dialogue that you look forward to as a lyricist where you go, I'm going to raid that. There's the song. It kind of leads to a respite where it looks like it's a good place for a song to be. Yeah. And then the songs and then the songs are kind of massaged into it. And that particular kind of dialogue writing and the contemporariness at the time of that show um really lent itself to Hal David and Burt Bacharach. Um so it does really kind of sound seamless and like it all belongs. And th- there's also another kind of thing I've thought about often. I don't really have any conclusion about it. But it's it's really fascinating to me that when you watch the apartment, there is something kind of 50s and claustrophobic about the film. And when you watch Promises, Promises, it's sort of like the same story, but cracked open and there's almost nothing but daylight mm. in terms of the tone and in terms of how happy it makes the audience feel. What when it's done right. When it's yeah. done right. It, it, there's a sunniness to it. You're absolutely right on that. Now, uh, Burt Bacharach, who had come from the world of the recording studio where everything is, you know, modulated within an inch of its life and totally controlled by a technical staff. Were there any issues between going from that world to the world of live theater where it changes night by night? He was kind of distressed at the, um, the thing that often distresses composers, which was um, the orchestra kind of being buried under the stage and, and uh, various inconsistencies. So he was actually the first one to, um, set up a pit orchestra like a recording studio orchestra. He put in baffles, he put in things that would absorb sound. He so he could have mic sep- uh, sections separately and uh, had a soundboard, you know, um, creating the balance, not only in the orchestra, but um, with, the, um, with the vocals as much as was able with the, the, the technology at the time. Um, what was interesting about seeing that show and others of the period that used similar um, technology was how different they could sound later in the run. Because uh, I remember a sound guy explaining this to me that you'd get a replacements coming in and the mics were not necessarily calibrated for the new people, mm. you know, and if not, not right away. So things would subtly start to degrade. And you could you could go into you could watch promises promises uh, in a subsequent performance, and it's not the same show, you know. Um, and I, I, I that happens less now because everything costs so much money, including you know especially for the ticket buyer. Sure. So they're they're so they're they're you know and technology is better, so people are much much more assiduous about keeping shows in shape. But it was more challenging back then. How would you define the role of an orchestrator? It depends on the score. I would say that um, 
if you're the kind of composer who writes down every dot, Stephen Sondheim, you know, uh, Stephen Schwartz, guys like that, um, then what the orchestrator does is essentially deconstruct and reconstruct. He will um, take the piano part, look at its component parts, and reassign them um, to instruments to create something that <clears throat> is aesthetically and energetically the same, but not limited by piano technique. For example, um, speaking of Jonathan Turnick, if you go to the score of company and you listen to the piano part of not getting married today, that uh, uh, nervous hyper accompaniment figure um, that Amy sings to, it's actually kind of a rolling piano part goes back and forth. But you do that because you're limited by the technique of the piano. Mm. And so you've got like two notes in the top and one note on the bottom, nervously going back and forth. Tunic was able to do a stretto with strings doing three notes at the same time, which is why when you hear the orchestra, it's and it sounds like they're all doing the same, you know, and they are. Um, but it's linear as opposed to rolling. And it heightens everything. And being able to do it stretto on a string heightens everything because you've got that sharp attack, you know, as the bow hits the string that you can't do with it. I mean, you can do other things by attacking the piano more loudly, but you can't get that. And so it's, it's heightening the character. It's heightening the chemistry of the accompanying figures. Uh, I mean, I meant the character of the music, but also the character who's singing. It becomes another job when you have a composer who isn't quite as musically literate or who is more of a pop composer. I once asked Peter Howard, who did the, or who did the arrangements for uh, 1776, Sherman Edwards. And he said, oh, that was me. Of course that was me. And I talked to him you know, specifically about the things that sounded like a riff on period music, you know, harpsichord figures yeah. were used and stuff like that. And, um, you know, so he did that. I think that there oftentimes when you have a score with somebody who is not quite as accompaniment uh, minded uh, or indeed what I call a Hummer score, when you have somebody like, you know, uh, Mel Brooks, mm. um, you have, um, somebody who is your de facto arranger, like Mel Brooks has Glenn Kelly. And um, so Glenn Kelly actually does the piano part and then Doug Besterman, you know, does the same thing, but he's really working from Glenn Kelly's piano part rather than Mel Brooks humming. Um, and, and, you know, and there, there are variations. I think there are probably orchestrators who take on the job of arrangement. And the only one I can think of is um, everybody's still alive, so I don't want to point fingers. But um, but um, you know, then then it it, it 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 I remember reading Stephen Sondheim saying then it you know it eventually becomes an arranger's score, and to a degree, you know, um, I, I think a lot has to do with the personality and the imprimatur of the composer. I remember reading that 
um, Frank Lesser always worked with somebody who would not arrange, but he'd always have uh, musical assistants who would take down his ideas. And I think he was very music literate as I, as I know it. And I, I think he played piano, but he still wanted that kind of assistance. And he, you know, he, he made them sign a contract that indemnified them, you know, because oh. everything on well, the composition was still his. Um, but you know, it's, 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 it's not, a, it's not uncommon to do that. Anyway, I'm, I'm veering off the question. The no, question no, no. is, uh, okay. Um, but it's basically to enhance the idea of what the piano part is giving you. Um, and yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, you know, and in your chapter, you, you mentioned a few of these individuals, and I'd love to just get some further information on what they contributed to musical theater, which is some other orchestrators besides Jonathan Tunick, uh, individuals like Robert Russell Bennett and individuals like Ralph Burns. And I think a lot of people that enjoy musical theater but are not experts at it might be surprised to know how much of their favorite musical memories were actually created by orchestrators and not necessarily the original composers. Can we talk a little bit about the contributions Bennett and Burns made to musical theater and musical theater scores? Well, in terms of the contributions, Bennett certainly codified the Richard Rogers sound. I mean, I don't, uh, or I said the, the Richard Rogers sound when you're thinking of Rogers and Hammerstein. Sure. I don't, I, I, you can't really think of their shows fully staged with a full orchestra without hearing the Robert Russell Bennett sensibility. Um, and he David, even did his, yeah. What is that sensibility? How would you define that sensibility? In the case of Bennett and I can't necessarily articulate it except to say that it sounds like he, the sensibility is an exploitation of the soul of the composer mm. is the best way I can put it. Um, and you can hear um, and that's why it was at, I think one of its most successful uh, renderings was that um, Ralph Burns was um, was also interesting to me. Now, this is my opinion. This is not necessarily sure. a fact. But when I but when I listen to Ralph Burns' orchestration, say for Minnie's Boys, which is a score I love, Larry Grossman's score. Oh yeah, it sounds a little thin to me, um, as opposed to what Jonathan Tunick did for Good Time Charlie. And I go, yeah, that's what Larry Grossman's music needs to sound like. By the same token, the same principles uh, applied to Chicago, which Ralph Burns did you know, for Cy Coleman and for um, Sweet Charity, it sounds exactly right. You know, it sounds very much more attuned to where Cy Coleman lives. And I just think that was a great alchemy. And the way that some, you can listen to some composers and say, oh, that's a Jason Robert Brown, or, you know, that's a Leonard Bernstein. Do we get the same thing with orchestrators? Can you listen to the orchestration of a song and go, oh, of course that's Ralph Burns, or of course that's Jonathan Tunick? Yeah, you can. I think, though, that more recently, it's a little bit more difficult because with the advent of Jonathan Tunick, 
you had a lot of young orchestrators who were um, emulating that and liberated by that. So you'd have big sounds that weren't necessarily created by um, Jonathan Tunick. And you also had guys who, and then add to that the more recent uh, introduction of electronics to um, uh, orchestrations and the versatility just expands exponentially. When we were doing Weird Romance, um, uh, working with Alan Menken, you know, I, I guess because I'm a composer too, he's always been very generous with me, you know, having my way with the musical department. And so I actually had um, some time with uh, Doug Besterman talking about styles of things. And um, the uh, number pressing onward, moving forward, for example, um, you know, he came to my house and we, we, we played, you know, drop the needle on the record or, you know, play the CD track. I said, can we make it sound something like this? And I remember I put on a CD I just bought with, it was the soundtrack of Around the World in 80 Days. I think it was Billy Goldenberg, which has that really expansive, wonderful main theme. And I played that for him and I said, I want it to sound, you know, I think that's the sensibility. And Doug looked at me and he's like, okay, David, but I've only got four musicians. And then he went home and he did it anyway. You know what I mean? <laughs> he, was able, he was able to synthesize that. Uh, pun not intended, but it's a good pun. And, um, you know, and, and those techniques are, um, you know, you, you've got guys who can be incredibly versatile now. And I think that they're, they're more stylistic. As I hear it, they're more stylistic chameleons now. And um, I'm not sure. I may be wrong about this. I may be, I may be a generation too old to make this, this, this generalization with impunity. But um, I'm not so sure that their styles are instantly as recognizable as what Jonathan did or Ralph Burns or um, Eddie Sauter. Um, I think now that there's, uh, it, it might depend more on the character of the, uh, of the show that they're trying to orchestrate. As, as I say, but, but, sure. but I, think that's I think that's inevitable too, come to think of it there being chameleons, because I think that, um, you know, right now, as you're well aware, in the, in the cultural zeitgeist, there's a very big emphasis on diversity. And there are, and, and you know, there was a time when uh, musical theater was about 90% Jews. Mm -hmm. um, and that is less and less now. And the reason I don't think is as much about um, the timing of diversity as it is the change in electronic media and everything being available worldwide. I mean, you know, there's, if, if you're assiduous about it and, and you really, you know, and you're young enough, but you want to see things and you know where to go, which is not hard to find. You can yeah. find bootleg recordings, video recordings of shows going back at least to the late seventies. There's nothing that you can't actually see. It's not like being in the theater, yeah. but there's very little that you cannot watch you know, and take note of. And when things like that are widespread and people care about musicals, they start to absorb them, you know, more. 
um, because you can absorb them anywhere in the world. And I think the same thing may have been happening with orchestrators too, because mm. they've been listening, especially the young ones, because they've not just been watching shows and listening to LPs, they've been listening to CDs. They've been, you know, working with those people as their mentors. They've been looking at the bootlegs, same as you and me, you know, and I think that, that that's, an, that's an education. Osmosis yeah. is, uh, is an education unlike any other. And I think that might be what's happening now, too. Can you walk us through uh, what an orchestra would be like pre-Promises Promises versus what Promises Promises then brought to the table? And I believe you had mentioned at some point in your chapter this idea of Broadway orchestras at some point trying to emulate like the Hollywood studio orchestra. Well, actually, I think that happened. I think that happened later. Great. great. Uh, I think that happened. I think that happened uh, um, subsequent to Jonathan Tunick, because I think that the introduction or not the introduction, but what for lack of a better word, I'll call the codification of transparency as a technique lent itself to bigger orchestrations. Mm and a bigger sound and a more versatile sounding pit because you gave yourself more choices. Um, and Jonathan also kept redefining those choices because especially when he started working with Sondheim, there's no two of those scores that sound alike, though they all sound like the combination of him and Sondheim. Yeah. Um, and so every reuse of the orchestra um, expanded the possibilities. For example, um, I remember reading, he said of Follies, um, in particular, the Follies numbers, he said he didn't orchestrate what that actually sounded like during the time when those kinds of songs were being performed, he said, because it would sound like a circus band. Mm. What he orchestrated is what you thought it sounded like. And what you thought you remembered it sounded like. Oh, interesting. You know, which of course plays right into the whole memory thing of the show too. But the orchestrations do sound very much bigger and lusher, but they retain the spirit, which is what the composition does. And um, when you listen to say Pacific Overtures, um, as you probably know, when Sondheim was looking for the vocabulary for that score, his research into Eastern music was not particularly helpful. Um, I heard him say, uh, he was talking about, like if you, if you listen to a Samazin player, that so much of the emphasis is on the note, how a note is attacked, how a note is released. And that doesn't help Western ears at all. And he was looking for the Western equivalent of the Eastern sound. And then he hit upon the music of uh, the Spanish composer, Manuel de Falla. And it doesn't move around much harmonically. It'll stay in one place for a long time. Um, and if you listen to de Falla's music, and then you listen to like Pacific Overtures right next to it, you go, holy cow, geez, Louise, <laughs> you know? And there's Jonathan Tunick channeling both of them you know um and again it's sondheim sound it's jonathan's sound but it's also defia's sound um and i think the more those two guys kept redefining the uh, uh 
the, the ways in which you could use the tools of a full orchestra. Um, and of course the ensemble changes somewhat depend, you know, from show to show. But uh, I think that too was part of the osmosis uh, training for a lot of the, the younger orchestrators. After prom, well, you know, I, you know, you said also in your chapter, and I thought this was so interesting that, uh, and please correct me if I'm paraphrasing, the idea that Promises, Promises is the last real successful book musical before the Sondheim revolution happens with company. Is that a, a correct statement? Well, I meant, I, in the sense that I was thinking about that as I reread the chapter preparatory to this, it was sort of like the last redoubt of the traditional book musical at that time. It's starting to come back. It's never entirely gone away, but it was away for a long time, I think. Yeah. Um, but just in terms of how it was structured, uh, in terms of the relative, not complete, but relative lack of dramatic movement in the songs. Mm -hmm. Generally, once the songs in that show start, you know what the deal is, and they're not going, go they're not going anywhere that's going to surprise you, <clears throat> except musically. The build and all of that and the performance um uh and, and and the verisimilitude isn't broken but in terms of how song functions um susan shulman when she was teaching a libretto chess class at bmi she used to make the point that if you could take the songs out of a musical the script should stop making sense and that is not really what happens in Promises, Promises. You can remove those songs and the book would still pretty much play. Sure. Um, you'd feel something missing. You know, it's not a play. It's, it, it's not a play with music. It is a musical. It feels like a musical. But there's very little that happens in those songs that the book can't accommodate somehow. Um, Except for places, no, I won't even say except, but I mean, there are places where, again, they just kind of expand upon what's going on. Like, like, uh, well, you know, you know what it reminds me of in a bit, a bit, um, to talk about my own show. <laughs> when we were doing Weird Romance and um, I was working on the second of the two one acts for Pilgrim Soul, um, I had a hell of a time with that. I hadn't really actually even planned to musicalize that, to be honest. What had happened was I was trying to, uh, I was talking with Alan Menken about um, what kind of a show we might try. And I said, you know, speculative fiction, science fiction, it's a lot more than zap guns and space operas. Mm -hmm. And I played him the Twilight Zone episode for Pilgrim Soul from the 80s version that was written by Alan Brenner. And... Um, at the end of the episode, appropriately enough, he was crying and he was moved and he said, I want to do that story. And I said, like an idiot, okay. <laughs> and we wound up, and, and, and really that afternoon we called, we got connected with Alan Brennert and he said, okay, you know, and then suddenly we'd be doing it. And then I spent about six months trying to solve it because it didn't readily lend itself to song. It was so beautifully constructed. And, but I, there were emotions there that you could sing about. And finally, Finally, I understood that the way that you had to musicalize that, I had to tease it open and find places where there was unarticulated emotion or things that I could expand and let those things kind of rise up to the surface. And 
Promises, Promises in a very different way is still similar to that. It's sort of like the musical moments work well because somehow by, by accident or design or both, they kind of tease the action open and let something expand that didn't necessarily have to be expanded, but you're very happy they expanded it. Mm -hmm. Do you think that a lot of Promise's success, especially with songs that are lyrically and dramatically static, that Tunic's orchestrations gave the illusion that something was occurring? Oh, absolutely. Something was changing? And is there is there a song that you could specifically point to possibly that says this is a great example of that? Well, uh, uh, I'll give you a compound answer. I do think it was Jonathan Tunick hugely because he provided the motor, but um, the orchestral motor. But he also was very conscious about understanding that this was a Burt Bacharach score and his job was to communicate the Burt Bacharach sound. And he made it his business to make what was sounding like what was coming from the pit sound as much like one of Bacharach's albums as possible. So in emulating Burt Bacharach, I think it was Bolton. Also, as I was researching this, I found out that, uh, for example, um, as you may know, when he was orchestrating company and he got to um, the repeated part of being alive in the second part of the song, he used... Um, company as a counterline in the strings as Bobby singing being alive you can hear it in the background and he said he knew you know he knew it was a big liberty and he was very relieved that Sondheim came walking up the aisle nodding his head like yes that's great I'm not so sure Bacharach, Bacharach would have done that would have agreed mm -hmm. to it it's uh, in my research it seems that every every time Tunic added a line or a fill or an accompaniment figure that was not in Burt Bacharach's piano part, he almost inevitably said, no, I don't want that. Mm. He wanted it to be exactly what he had written. So um, in terms of, I don't think it was just Jonathan. I think it was the two of them. Um, but yeah, he, he manages to find, the orchestrations managed to find the emotional fun or the urgency in what's going on. Um, and I think that there's a really interesting, I'm not sure I know why it works. It just does. There's a kind of a magic trick to songs like wanting things, you know, um, why should you even care about that guy and that song, you know, and dramaturgically speaking, why does he act that way if he has that much insight about himself? Yeah. You know, and yet the alchemy of Edward Winter, that orchestration, that context, um, the audience on opening night went nuts. Mm. Now that said, um, interestingly enough, because I have seen the show subsequently and I've heard the London cast album. James Congdon was not as good an actor, not as good a vocalist, and the audience didn't go nuts. Yeah, It was okay. You know, they said, that's not fine. But when you've got that kind of electricity going on, it, 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 the, the, the emotional 
I'll call it truth because you buy into it. You don't feel like you're being lied to. Whatever's going on there, you just you just say, okay, fine, I'm going to go with it, and you do. Um, Promises, promises. Is, 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 it's also an interesting show, and in you know, I've, I've talked about. It's effective if you do it right. Doing it right is very generational. I have found it's not the only musical I can think of like this, but I think it's the one that's most like this. Sure. Which, which is that, for example, the casting of Chuck Baxter in revival, almost always, Chuck Baxter is cast and played as kind of a nebbish who learns yeah. to be a man. That's not the way it was originally done. If you look at um, who originally was playing that role, on Broadway it was Jerry Arbach, followed by Tony Roberts, followed by a great guy who became a friend of mine named Gene Rupert, and uh, an actor named Bill Gerber. These were tall galoots, you know? These were guys, they walked on stage, they were men, you know? Yeah, and I... And it was a story about a guy who sold out his own manhood and had to reclaim it. And that's very different of in terms of the acting style, you know? And the road companies, there was the same guy, you know, guys like Will McKenzie, uh, you know, and, and it was just, it was very different sensibility in terms of approach, and it affected the chemistry of the show. And, you know, that's such an interesting point that you make because, you know, in recent major productions of it, uh, we've had Jason Alexander, we've had Martin Short, we've had Sean Hayes. Uh, why do you think that transition occurred when they went from the Jerry Orbach type to a Martin Short type or a Sean Hayes type and you could not have more polar opposites in one another? Well, I, I didn't see, I've had no exposure to the Jason Alexander uh, interpretation, although I would bet that he was smart enough to be closer to the original. He was, this, yes, his, yes, he was. Because, because I think that's his natural energy. But I think that the reason is um, simply because newer generations who are, who were born after those shows were done, it's like they don't have access to that sensibility in in what they've been exposed to now i don't think it's just a matter of birthright because i know people who are younger than i am who you know uh, um uh instantly get onto but you know you sort of have to you know you, you think of someone like seth mcfarland who's a stylistic chameleon who was very young when he started but seemed to understand everything going back to the beginning of the 20th century yes um uh but um you know, it, it's, it's just something about, I remember I was talking with um, Evan Pappas about a particular actor in a particular role. And Evan was saying, well, I remember when I was that young actor and, you know, I was, you know, had the pressure on me and I was, uh, and I said to him, no, Evan, 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 listen, you and I popped out of the womb knowing how to do a cold reading, Okay. <laughs> And you know, it, right? And 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 you want you, you have to. Undo, and he said yes. Finally, he said yes. But um, you know, the, the, there is something about uh, the people who popped out of the womb knowing how to do a cold reading. You know, I've rarely seen the apple tree done in any way that actually connects to the sensibility that was Jules Pfeiffer. You know, or the tone of the diary of adam and eve 
the way it was originally done. Um, and you could hear it. I never, I didn't see the original production. Alas, I wish I had. But you can hear it on the cast album. There's a kind of, I hate to say delicacy, but there is this kind of, you're walking that fine line between being satirical and taking the universe seriously at the same time. Yeah. And uh, that's, you know, I, I, that, that's very much a part of television now when you see things like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and things like that. But it had not been mainstreamed then. And in the theater, it's, it's like, well, we either have to be satirical or we have to be real. No, you can, two things can be true at the same time. If you were casting a uh, revival of Promises, Promises today, who do you imagine the ideal Chuck Baxter would be? Do we have anyone um, like a Jerry Orbach type? We probably do. I'm not sure I know enough of the young actors uh, in my in the Rolodex in my head uh, to name names. You know who might be a good Chuck Baxter is Andy Carl. Oh, great choice, Rocky! Wonderful, wonderful actor. That's because you know he walks on again, and he's just you know this is a this is a guy. You know I don't have to worry about you know his manhood. I worry about him when he sells it out. And then the rest of the show is I have to reclaim it. Got it. You know, and, and that's where, and that's the rite of passage toward, you know, him finding his, his ethical center. I would Because it's, to... it's about, a, it's about an ethical center. It's not about a manhood center. I think that's the thing. Oh, that's what a fabulous point. I would love to talk about uh, the song that crossed over from just being in the musical theater world to being a pop standard, which is I'll never fall in love again. Uh, how much of Tunic's orchestrations or the orchestrations of that original number, do you think, played a part in allowing this song to do a crossover, if any? I don't know, to be honest. Um, I thought about that too, preparation to this, because I listened to the song again. And I also listened to it on the London album with uh, Betty Buckley and Tony Roberts. And what I was struck by. And it's not the only song in the score that I've, I'm struck this way about, is there's a certain <coughs> um, intellectual, I, I mean, as, as you're observing it, incongruity between the song styles, even to some degree what happens in the songs, and the story. I mean, suddenly Chuck Baxter picks up a guitar and he's a pop strumming, you know, fool. I'm like, where did that come from? Nobody cares. You know, it just happens to, you know, uh, um, not only that, but in picking up the guitar, he is making a book song a diegetic song, but it's not a diegetic song. You know, um, a young pretty girl like you, that's a circus song, right? Um, uh, uh, um, what is it called? This, uh, um, someone like me, I, I'm blowing oh, the title. You'll think of someone? Thank you. Yeah. Uh, yes. And, and, you know, and you listen to happy little things like 
climbing hills and rowing boats on a lake. You people are in the middle of New York City. Yeah. What are you talking about? Right. You know, you know, the basketball thing. Okay, basketball, the Knicks and thing. But I mean, in the in the film, he's waiting for her in front of the music man and she never shows up, you know, so. But you don't care. You actually don't care. Is there something about the style of the music? And I think very possibly the familiarity of the Bacharach sound, because at that point, everybody knew it. Mm-hmm. And again, this is my opinion. I did see the show. I did see the original production. Uh, and I saw really good. The first time I saw it, I saw it was in really good shape. Um, and my friend Gene Rupert was standing by for Tony Roberts. I never got to see Tony Roberts, but Gene was fantastic. And he eventually took it over. And there was something about hearing the Bacharach sound in a live theater performance that was cathartic. It just had not been done before. And it's like, this is something new. And you could feel it. You could absolutely feel it. So I think that that energy and that sense of catharsis, something just occurred to me. Um, I have a fantastic therapist. I've been in therapy for years, just, just normal maintenance, but very helpful. Same. And I have a very, very, okay, there you go. Very, very smart therapist. I won't name him. I don't know if he'd be embarrassed, but he's a very smart guy. And I learned a number of principles from him. Some of them are actually original to him. And some of them he said came from mentors that he's had. But one of the most useful is there's your intellectual life and there's your emotional life. And one thing has nothing to do with the other, which I, you know, in terms of my own life, I take it to mean, you know, you don't have to cast yourself, castigate yourself for having a feeling, you know how to behave. So you can let those feelings happen without, you know, but in terms of this show, I think the same thing is going on. These are shows, these are songs that operate on a much more emotional level than an intellectual level. You know, you can theorize about why they work and, and maybe even be right. But then there are those stylistic and lyrical incongruities and nobody cares. Nobody points them out. Not in any reviews do they say, why are they talking about climbing hills and rowing boats? There's just when it's done right, you sit back and you go, okay, I'm on board. Mm. And I think it's because it taps into something emotional. You want to see, and it may also be because, again, and it's just the alchemy of who was writing it and who was in the room and who the actors were. Um, There's just some, I, I think also because they were, Average Joe characters in a way. Neil Simon made Chuck Baxter larger than life, but he really wasn't. Yeah. Um, Ed Winter made Sheldrake bigger, but he really wasn't. Um, you know, all of those actors made an impression in the film, which because of a film, everybody's up close and, 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 and I, you know, but they were not larger than life characters personalities yes but not larger than life characters the musical makes them larger than life in some ways but they're still regular folks 
But then when they sing, they are transported out of that world. Yeah. And, 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 and there's something heavenly that happens again, when the show is done right. And when it's done right, it's, 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 it's extraordinary. Yeah. When it's done right, you forgive it everything. Exactly. Exactly. And of course, you know, one of the great things that leads to that, of course, is the brilliant orchestrations by Jonathan Tunick. Now, Burt Bacharach never came back to the theater. Is that correct? He never came back. Um, he, he found the process so exhausting and so emotionally draining that he didn't want to put himself through it again. Um, and I guess I understand that because part of um, the process of doing a musical, it involves the rewrites and the problem solving. And even when you're involved in a musical that is going extremely well and everybody knows what the show is and everybody's on the same page, there are those moments that, um, you know, people can, can butt heads. Um, uh, and you have to love it somehow, you know, somehow it just has to juice you. Um, when we went into um, Duddy Kravitz, for example, um, there were three parts of the script, three moments in the script that I had never ever been able to solve. Um, but one of the reasons why I wanted to work with Austin Pendleton is he's the only guy I know who's a better dramaturg than I am. And um, I knew that I didn't have those moments solved, but I also had complete confidence that in rehearsal we would solve them because I was working with Austin. And sure enough, you know, when we got to those moments and they didn't work, he was always able to pinpoint, not tell me what to do, but pinpoint conceptually where I was thinking the wrong way and show, I could shift the perspective and go, oh, Christ, that's why I didn't do it. Mm. And then I was able to write it like, like a breeze. And I think you have to get off on it. You know, even though you know you've got a problem, even though you know you're under pressure, yeah. there is something about doing it and doing it and living the life you have to love it because I, there's nothing better than when you get it right you know and you've gone through all that and i and i and i understand you know it's 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 like there are people who are born new yorkers who were not born in new york yeah right and there are people who are not new yorkers who are born in new york and can't wait to get out you know i think if if it's not in your blood you're not going to be happy, yeah. you know, or satisfied or whatever, or you're going to find it too exhausting. And that's why Mr. Bacharach has not returned to us. David, our last question for you is why did you want to write this chapter? You could have picked any one of the 50 titles, but there was something about promises that gravitated you towards it. What is it? Why did you want to codify this? I think by the time I got to it, some of the others have been taken to be perfectly honest. <laughs> great. Great. Um, I think, I think there was, it may have been down to, I don't remember how many, but, uh, but it was also, it, it, it wasn't so much the amount of titles that was left. I think it was the ones that I was felt I was qualified to write. Um, I think because 
I tend to think orchestrally anyway when I'm working as a composer. As I told you before we started this, um, I did the I did fairly expansive orchestral synthesized tracks for the theater work shows, and I and I compose. I, I orchestrate as I compose. Um, um, especially if I know that I'm going to go to a demo first or I'm composing tracks for the touring show. Uh, I don't start with a piano vocal score. You know, I'm, I'm going to go right for the tracks and then dumb down to a piano vocal score later. And those kinds of the, or, the, the great orchestrators were my teachers, not only the show albums, you know, the orchestrators we talked about, but Lalo Schifrin, Earl Hagen, Michelle Legrand, Mancini, uh, um, John Addison, John Williams, uh, John Barry. Um, God, all of those incredible, incredible composers and arrangers, Hugo Montenegro, um, and the British guys. I just, I just, I have just absorbed all that. And so it was a pleasure and a privilege to explore that um, with this chapter because that's very meaningful to me. And like I've said before, and I will say again, David, the chapter is so wonderful and you put in so much brilliant information about how orchestration has developed because of promises, promises. It's, and like I said, every time I read it, I immediately run to the cast recording and play it and try to figure out exactly if I can, I can identify what you're talking about. It is. Thank you. Uh, thank, thank you. And David, thank you so much for joining us today. Please make sure to purchase a copy of 50 Key Stage Musicals by visiting Routledge.com or clicking in today's show description. If you want to learn more about Promises, Promises, please also review the links in the below description. I'm Robert Schneider, and thank you so much for listening to 50 Key Stage Musicals, the podcast. Bye-bye. I feel free. Now I can look at Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.